You are listening to the pulpit ministry of New Hope Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. We have prayed and labored, hoping these sermons would be a blessing to you and your walk with Jesus Christ. And it is with that truth in mind that we now invite you to experience God with us, verse by verse. Uh, let, me, let me pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for your word first and foremost, that you have condescending to reveal your Son to us in a language we can understand. We thank you for preserving your word throughout history, that you have made it so that we could study diligently the doctrines and the person of Jesus. We just ask that you would be present this morning, that you would enable us to learn and grow and be transformed by what you have for us in this word. Lord, I would ask that you would eject everything from my mind and my heart and my study that is not true. That you would eject the meditations of my heart. If they are untrue. Lord, truth is what is welcome here. I would ask that you would impress that on your people's heart this morning. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. We might say this morning, if pressed, that it would be an absolutely foolish thing that these Pharisees, that these men would, as the scripture will tell us, seek to destroy his life. But that is precisely what we are going to read today. So start with me here. In verse 1 of chapter 3. And think of it as a continuation of what we started last week on this talk of Sabbath. Verse 1, he entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if we would heal him, if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved in their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. As I said, we might say this morning, if pressed, that it is absolutely outlandish that these men would have such hatred in their hearts for Jesus that they would, as verse 6 says here, conspire against him so that they might destroy him. I mean, what has Jesus done since the Mark's gospel began other than to heal those who were sick and diseased so that they might experience comfort and restoration? What has he done except free those who who were in hellish bondage to demons. He gathered food for people and he proclaimed the kingdom and salvation to come if they would apprehend it by repentance of sin and belief in the gospel. This Jesus was everything that the people could have ever hoped for. In fact, it was who they hoped for. They just missed it, even though it was right in front of them. But, but you see, the wickedness and the perverseness of our hearts deceive us if we don't fully understand what's going on here. 
these Pharisees and these scribes did not seek to kill Jesus because of the healings that he did or the exorcisms he performed or because of the people that he fed. No, they they sought to murder him because he upset their way of life by claiming to be the coming Messiah. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be deity. Make no mistake about it. In other words, it wasn't the life that he lived, but the words that he spoke that created such hostility in the hearts of these men. And, And by the way, that has not changed. The reason that we hate Jesus before coming to him is not because he healed people. Not because he cast out demons and not because he had compassionate love for the widow. But because he steps on our toes. By claiming to be Yahweh and by manifesting his divine power and the preaching of the gospel, Jesus provoked and reveals the hearts of his hearers. For the destitute and the self-admittedly weak, for the outcast, his his claim to be Lord of all proved to be a life-changing truth that bred supernatural joy and comfort. But to those who saw themselves as strong, who saw themselves as superior, who were oozing with damning pride, such a pronouncement ushered in the reality of complete and utter death. Death of their way of life, death of their self-sufficiency, death of their public perception, death of their religiosity, and eventually if clung to in the face of Jesus' call to abandon all, eternal death. And here's why it makes sense though that the Pharisees would take the life, or plan to take the life of Jesus, and and why you and I would do the same thing or have the same heart posture if given the chance. If if Jesus showed up here today doing the same things in the same way, we would have a similar disposition to him. Why? Pride. Pride. (laughs) Pride makes you do, makes me do, makes us do, and think really stupid things. That's the best way I knew how to frame that sentence. After poring over volumes and volumes of things that talked about pride, that is the thing that presented itself. There's more profound ways to say it. There's more nuanced ways to say it. But the reality is, pride makes us do and think stupid, ridiculous things. For this reason, pride is the most dangerous, and as we will talk more about in depth later, satisfying sins. In fact, Augustine went on to say that that pride is the mother that begets all other sins. That you can trace literally every single problem that you have back to pride. Pride is the sin that got our first parents, Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden. The lie that says, we know better than God, or more sinister in some of our hearts, we are God. Pride is specifically dangerous because it literally inverts reality. 
It enables us to exchange sanity for complete and utter delusion. When you have a prideful heart, you have no room for God, or for that matter, a Savior. For pride and the gospel message, that is the message of grace, cannot coexist. You cannot come to Jesus, you cannot experience the salvation that He offers and continue to cling to human effort or works, as the Bible would call it. The salvation that Jesus offers is, is one that you cannot earn, you cannot merit, you cannot deserve, and you cannot achieve. And this flew in the face of the self-righteous leaders of Israel, the Judaism of the day. It didn't jive well with them, and, and if we're honest, it doesn't jive real well with us either. That is apart from a supernatural act of grace. These men absolutely hated Jesus, they hated his theology, and they hated his message because they were happily overrun and overwhelmed by their spiritual pride. They, they did a lot. Let's, let's kind of zoom back a little bit. These men put to death many of their fleshly desires. These men did better at life than a majority of you sitting in these chairs today. What do I mean by that? The outward sins that they possessed, they ridded themselves of. They followed the Ten Commandments somewhat flawlessly. When you looked at their life, you would say, no, I, I know John. John doesn't sleep around on his wife. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't drink a lot, right? He doesn't worship other gods. He doesn't steal. He doesn't do a lot of these things. Outwardly, he would be clean. Paul makes a similar claim in one of his letters when he says, as to the law of the Pharisees, as to the rules and regulations set in place by our leaders, I'm blameless. You can't point at my life and say, I've messed this up. I did better than most. In fact, I did better than all of my contemporaries. Remember he said this in Philippians. So the problem wasn't the outward appearance. The problem wasn't the Ten Commandments that they were following. But as we saw last week, it was in the disposition of their hearts. The inward realities. They hadn't let the truth of what was being taught by Jesus sink in. And you might be asking the question, well, how can sinners do outward things and yet on the inside be dark? On the inside, do it with the wrong motives. On the inside, be wrong. You see, churches are filled with people like this. Churches are filled with people who come in and check the boxes, serve faithfully, preach, teach, play worship music, Help with the audio and visual stuff. Whatever the case may be, you feel help with communion, clean up trash, make the coffee in the morning, you name it. Filled with people who do all that stuff so at the end of the day, people can walk up to them and say, good job, well done. 
You're who I look to as a spiritual leader, as someone who's mature, as one who is put together. And the reason that they can do this is because pride is so seductive. Spiritual pride is so seductive. And it's fulfilling. It's like an aphrodisiac. It's a drug. When you walk around with a superiority complex and you think, man, I really am doing a great job and then everybody else affirms the reality that you're doing a good job, whew, there's nothing better. So we can spend the majority of our life pretending to be someone we're not so that people can give us accolades. One of church history's greatest men, John Wesley, was a missionary to America from England. Preached the gospel, helped usher in the Great Awakening, read Romans 8 for the first time, and it changed him. It wasn't the first time that he read it, it was the first time it changed him. Now, I want to point out, this man had been a part of the Great Awakening. This man had been a missionary. This man had done more for the kingdom of God and been recognized for it than you ever will be. And later on in his life, he would come to say, before that moment, I did not know Jesus. Before that moment, I did not do what I did for him. So you can trick yourselves, whether you think you can or not, into being much like these Pharisees. So, how does Jesus address these prideful, spiritually prideful people? Well, He does it by assaulting them. He does this by assaulting their system. We see in verse 1, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. The Greek word here literally means to be bound up to tide, like, like plants, like how it would wither. Atrophy. Some church histories uh, outside of the Bible, extra biblical sources say that this man was a stonemason before he actually came to this moment of a moment of his life. So his hands were his lifeblood. So he probably was on the street begging for money because he couldn't make any of his own. And they were watching him, that being the Pharisees. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So, so you have this man over here on this side who has a withered hand, begging for money, needing compassion. And then you have over here the Pharisees totally ignoring this man and his needs and looking solely to accuse Jesus for breaking the law. This is absolutely antithetical to the biblical worldview. It's antithetical to the things that were taught in the Old Testament, right? We talked about this last week, about the Sabbath, and about how even the people on the outsides, the people who were not a part of Israel, but were coming in and were jobless, were sojourners, could come and take grains of wheat off the sides of the field because we are to care for one another. The Old Testament is a book that 
tells us that we are to love people as image bearers of God. And yet, the Pharisees here seem to totally disregard this man that Jesus saw. What this should indicate to us is that we easily lack compassion when the first priority is to make much of ourselves. We will miss the people around us that we are called to love if we are seeking our own fame, our own accolades, and our own self-righteousness. Being known for being the guy. Being known for being the guy. And so here we have the context of this situation. The context is the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to him, It is lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill. As we talked about last week, the Sabbath is the climax of their self-righteous, prideful system. It was a time where they could parade their holiness in the streets of Israel by developing, implementing, and adhering to ridiculous rules and regulations. Remember we said the Old Testament mentioned Sabbath three times and the only thing it ever said was to cease from work, to have rest, recreation, restoration. But the Pharisees made up their own rules. They turned it into the most strenuous and backbreaking day of the week. I mean, could you imagine this scenario where every single day Every single Sabbath, rather, your entire day was spent thinking of things that you shouldn't or can't do. Instead of relaxing, instead of trusting the Lord to sustain the whole world without you, instead of working hard, right? And, and, and that is the Christian worldview. You work hard. You work tirelessly. You work backbreakingly for the glory of God and for the sake of other people. And on the seventh day, you rest. But how unrestful is it to sit and wonder, oh no, did I, did I go one step further than I was supposed to go to? Did I pick that up the right way? Did I open my mouth too many times? Did the water spill and accidentally wash the floor? It would have been the most anxious of days. And when Jesus said, come to me, later on in this gospel, come to me, all who are heavy laden. He is not saying that, hey, just come to me, life is going to be easy. He's speaking directly into this situation where oppression abounds. And this, this brings up another good principle, a Bible reading principle. The Bible is written for you, but it's not written to you. When you pick up the Bible, right, we are reading other people's mail. A lot of it is New Testament letters to specific churches. The Gospels are written to specific people at specific times. Jesus spoke to specific people at specific times. And so when we try to discern what's actually being said in the Scriptures, we have to wonder, what did that mean to them then? What did that mean to them then? And so when Jesus says... Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, actual, real, Sabbath rest. He meant what he said. 
He was speaking into a system that made life ridiculously strenuous. And in order for him to free his people of oppression, in order for him to show Israel what was happening, in order for Jesus to attack the religious system, he then had to attack the Sabbath. In order to show the spiritual bankruptcy of their system, he had to assault their unholy ideas of what the Sabbath should look like. These men were in complete and utter spiritual darkness. And if you remember in 1 John, Jesus, or John rather, talks about how men love the darkness. That they want to hide They love the darkness because it fulfills their pride and they don't want to come to the light. They want to stay in their false religion. And and much in the same way, we want to do the same. It's very hard to get people who are stuck in their ways who think that this is how it should be to come out of that. To bring people who are tied up in the way that they've always done things and point them to the Scriptures is one of the hardest things anyone could ever do, ever. <laughs> because our hearts are twisted. I have, I, I am, I consider myself very lucky to be here at New Hope Church. For one, great church. For two, people aren't trying to crucify me for the things that I say up here in the pulpit. And I say some hard things. I say biblical things that generally American Christians are not too fond of. This is not true of many of my friends who I went to seminary with. They got jobs at churches and they began to preach the Bible and the church that they were a part of saw the Bible the way that they wanted to see it. Not for the way that it really was. And a lot of it, They were angry, not necessarily about even the way he was preaching, but the way in which he conducted himself, because that's not the way we do it around here. And I can't name you how many of those friends either got fired, are in the process of being fired, or the idea of being fired is looming on them. Why? Not because they're all bad pastors. Though I'm sure there's a couple of them sprinkled in there. It's not because they're bad preachers, because some of them are great. It's because when you start pushing up against people's religious systems, they kill you. Crucify you. And that is why they here are transpiring to kill Jesus. Because he's pushing up against their pride, pushing up against their self-righteousness, and pushing up against the way that they've always done things, even though it's unbiblical. This isn't even true in church. This is true no matter where you go. This is true at your job. This is true in homes, especially mixed homes that have kids from other parents and so on and so forth, right? There's this parent A used to raise, you know, kid A in this way. Parent B raises kid B in this way. And then you bring them together Oh boy, there's never been tension like that before. Why? People are the boss of their own lives. And if anybody touches that, it's the end. 
People love to think highly of themselves. People love to think that they're superior than those around them. People love to think that they know better. And how does Jesus respond? In the face of such unhumility, in the face of such hostility, how does Jesus respond? Well, we're going to see next. We, we moved from the context to now the conflict. Jesus goes straight for the jugular. The reality is, this man's hand has probably been damaged for a long time. The truth is, it wasn't life-threatening. He could have done this, say, I don't know, Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday, he could have invited him over for lunch, healed him up. But no, he did it on the Sabbath because he wanted them, the Pharisees, to see this reality, that he is Lord over the Sabbath, as we talked about last time, and that he runs the show. He runs the show. Jesus is not afraid of conflict. We as Christians should not be afraid of conflict. Was Jesus loving, compassionate, long-suffering, and lovable? Of course He was. Should Christians be tactful? Should Christians be loving? Should Christians be compassionate? Yes and amen. But the reality is, we stand for our convictions. We stand not on the way that we've always done things, but we stand solely on the words and the Word of God. So, you may have heard this from other pastors. You may have heard this when you read evangelism books. Jesus wasn't in the don't offend them or you won't win them camp. There are a lot of people out there in the world who say the most loving thing we can do to the outside world who don't know Jesus, who are getting this whole thing wrong, is to kind of back off, love them from afar, let them do and say whatever it is they want, and that way we won't offend them, they won't get angry, and then we can actually then begin to tell them some truth. We can actually then begin to win them. Right? Don't offend them, win them. But Jesus is in the camp of offending them and winning them. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most offensive thing on the planet earth. And if you divorce that reality from your proclamation, you neuter the gospel of its power. There is nothing more offensive than the gospel of Jesus Christ to a person who refuses to, in humble adoration, gravel at the feet of Jesus for salvation. To not understand your neediness, to not understand your weakness, to not understand your need for grace is the pride that these Pharisees suffered from. And if we aren't careful, it's the same pride that can keep us from Jesus. And so, we see in Matthew 12 and Luke 6 parallel passages. Both of these Gospels say the same thing in different ways. And they include both of these together. The one 
sermon that we did last week and then this week. There is a direct connection, and this happened linearly. Even though Mark's gospel is not necessarily laid out that way, we need to see it that way because that's the way that every gospel that it's in presents it. Matthew 12, verses 10 through 12, enlightens this reality. So they accuse him. They have this conflict here where he says, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save life or kill? In Matthew 12, verses 10 through 12, it says this, And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, giving them an analogy that is not present here in this, which is why I'm bringing this up. What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So we are presented with these two realities. Is it good or bad to heal on the Sabbath? Or... Is a man more valuable than a sheep? Well, of course, the Pharisees would have agreed that a man's life was more valuable than a sheep. But in practice, in practice, they weren't showing this reality. They looked past the man to accuse Jesus. How do we practice what we say we believe. Here's the weird thing about the law. The weird thing about the Judaism of the day. They, they had all these laws. We talked about it. I'm not going to re-engage the, those, all those silly laws. But one of the laws that they had was that even a doctor could not operate on or see to another human being as long as their life wasn't in danger. Now, to be fair, they didn't have doctors like they have today. right? They didn't understand the pathology of viruses and how all that stuff worked, and they didn't understand medicine. But, but they had doctors that were there, and the only way that they could actually not be, quote-unquote, doing work on the Sabbath is if somebody was bleeding out about to die. And so Jesus is new. Jesus is not a kind of doctor. Jesus is the heavenly physician who heals everybody he comes into contact with fully, completely, and utterly. And so there isn't anything in the law about what happens when a guy shows up and just starts mad healing people. Because it's never existed. So they have to try to get him on a technicality. Well, you're helping someone who isn't going to die on the Sabbath, therefore... You're breaking the law. And Jesus points to a harsh reality. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Well, of course they would agree that to do good is right. But then he asks a very probing and loaded question. To save a life or to kill? It's interesting because he knows how they should answer the question. Their hearts would reveal to them that they were about to engage in a situation where they knew they were wrong, but he's also penetrating their heart. He's taking that information and he's giving it to them in a way that they can actually think about it 
and turn it on them because the reality is they were plotting to kill him. Remember I said in a couple sermons ago that he knew the thoughts of man. And so he was the one trying to do good and they were the ones plotting to kill him. Is it lawful or to do God? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? It's a powerful charge against them. The Bible called them to do good, but their traditions often led to oppression and harming people who were in need. Thus, they, they violated the law of God, not Jesus. And this is a valuable lesson. A valuable, valuable lesson for anyone who is in leadership or desires to be in leadership of any kind. That when you start making stuff about systems and structures and you start overlooking the fact that this has to do with people, you can really, really harm. Even if you have good intentions. Why? Because people matter more than rules, regulations, and rituals. The revelation of God made it clear that he was more concerned with his people doing good and showing compassion to others than their ridiculous observance of religion, religious ceremonies, and rituals. And they knew this. I'll, I'll prove it to you. If you look with me in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 7, it says this. What are your multiplied... God is speaking here, by the way. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of my assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. And plead for the widow. God was angry. And rightfully so. These men dressed themselves up on the outside, while inside... They were dead bones. This is why Jesus calls the Pharisees later on whitewashed tombs. What did he mean by that? He meant that people painted themselves up pretty on the outside like tombs, like whitewashed, clean tombs, right? But on the inside were rotting corpses. 
And God is saying to the priests, to the men of God, to the pastors, to the leaders, to the men of Israel, when you do that, when you neglect the widow, when you neglect and don't defend the orphan, when you don't reprove the ruthless, when you don't learn and teach goodness, when you don't cease from evil, and you come in here and you do all the things that I've commanded you to do, to burn incense, to have these ceremonies and these feasts and these festivals, when you do that, it stinks to me. Because it's not about what you do, it's about how you do it. It's not about the things that you externally project, it's about the inward disposition of the person. It's about taking the truth and actually living it out. And then, Jesus heals, yet again. If you haven't caught on yet, Jesus does really cool things all the time. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's healing again. He's claiming to be God. And here we are. Proving His goodness again. And after looking around, verse 5, at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. This man was not looking for healing. This man wasn't begging. In fact, Jesus, in this moment, if you're reading the story clearly, is causing a scene. He's standing in front of the Pharisees who are standing around waiting for this guy to mess up. They're sitting around. What is a pastor supposed to do? Just a really simple question here, guys. If I meet with you guys and you're in sin or you're struggling with something or whatever the case may be, right? And we're talking and we're praying and we're pleading with the Lord to change our hearts and we're, and we're doing these sorts of things. My heart as the pastor should be, Lord, cause them to walk in your statutes. Lord, change their heart. Change my heart. Change our heart as a community. I want what's best for this person. I want this person's marriage to be healed. I want this person's life to be healed. I want their addictions to be removed from them. I don't want them to step into sin. I don't want them to step into the judgment of the Lord. And yet these Pharisees are sitting, hoping that Jesus would betray the Sabbath so that they could have something on Him to put Him to death. And what you will find interesting as we move through the Gospel of Mark is this. They want to kill Jesus because he's upsetting their religious system. This is clear. But Rome doesn't care about the Jewish religious system. And so when they have Jesus crucified, what do they tell him? What do they tell the rulers? He's disturbing Rome. He's a threat to Rome. He's a threat. Get him! They have no problem with lying if they think it's going to protect their system. They've got no problem sinning against God if they think that it's going to help their case. And this is the first time, and, and actually I think, don't write this down in a book somewhere because I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure with the studying that I've done, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that it actually says that Jesus was full-blown angry. 
But you notice he says this, that he looked at them with anger, yet he was grieved in his heart, at their hardness of heart. Jesus was a complex individual, and we are complex individuals. This is important when you think about your Christian life, when you think about the people in front of you, especially people who you love, have invested in, care for, and they rebel against God, or they hurt you or betray others. When you look at them, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. Right? Second Corinthians says, in your anger, do not sin. It's okay to be angry, just don't sin when you're angry. There is righteous anger. Now, our hearts are deceitful. And we can think something's a righteous anger, and it's not. Or we can hold people accountable for things that they shouldn't be held accountable for. But Jesus is perfect. Jesus knows the heart's thoughts and intentions of man. And He's angry. But it also says that He's moved with compassion. He's grieved. He's sad. You can be angry and mourn. You can be upset and weep for people who have fallen into sin. See, too often in the church, when somebody's caught up in sin, when they're rebelling against God, or when people in our family are doing the same, we get the angry piece and we want nothing to do with them. If they betrayed me, Hey, you fool me once, shame on me. Right? But you ain't fooling me twice. Get out of here. I want nothing to do with you. And we cut them off as if nothing ever happened. As if they were never your friend in the first place. Why? Because they did you wrong. They did you dirty. No. Burn with compassion while being angry and he healed them. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So we had the context of this story. We had the conflict or the controversy and now we have the conspiracy. The conspiracy to kill Jesus. This is a plot twist. This is a turn. This is where everything starts to go downhill. So far, we've kind of been ramping up. Right? Jesus is the Son of God. He's healing. He's doing cool stuff. He's doing cool stuff. Up the hill, up the hill, up the hill, up the hill. Some people were getting concerned in the, uh, the group of the Pharisees, but overall, we're going up, we're going up, and now we're going to turn a corner. And everything from this moment on the Pharisees have a plan in mind. And that is to get rid of this man. Why? Because he pushed up against their sin. He pushed up against their pride. He pushed up against their way of life. And what's interesting is they made an interesting ally. You're asking, well, who in the world are these Herodians? Why would they partner with them? Well, the Herodians, interestingly enough, were irreligious and worldly political uh, group that supported the dynasty of Herod the Great. And by extension, that means that they supported Rome. And if you remember me talking about Matthew back in the beginning of Mark, you will remember that they didn't really like people who sold themselves out to Rome. 
Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people of Israel. They had negative things to say, and they felt really negative things about these men. So, the question is, why would the pastors of the day walk down the street to, I don't know, what's picks Planned Parenthood? and ask for their help in dealing with a problem. To them, the ends justified the means. Partnering with people who had nothing to do with your God, people who had nothing to do with your rules and regulations, people who had nothing to do with you, in fact, betrayed you, could be an ally if somebody touches your pride. And you know this to be true. If you're honest with yourself, if you find yourself in a situation where you can't be wrong, you gather, and it doesn't matter who you gather, and it doesn't matter why you gather them, you pull them closely, and you start murmuring. Can you believe, you know, Pastor Brandon did that? Can Can you believe that Tom did that? Can you believe that Harry or Sally did that? Oh, I, I know, we don't have to agree on that, but let's just get this guy together right now. Misery loves company. And pride loves to be built up. And so they grab a hold of these Herodians and they make a plan to kill the Messiah. Little did they know that this would be fulfilling God's plan. This is how big God is. This is how big God is. Man has a plan. God has a bigger plan. We see this in the story of Joseph. When his brothers tried to kill him because they saw him as prideful. Right? And and here's the thing. Here's the lesson in that Joseph story. The lesson in this story. And the lesson of life is that pride cannot coexist with other prideful people for very long before it turns on the other prideful person. Right? So we might be sitting in the chair saying, well, he's not talking about me. I'm probably talking about you. But also, if you're looking, you, you can recognize someone with pride. You, you can have enough conviction. You can, you can see it in other people. And you can call it out. Nobody's... I think the story of the Bible shows us that community is supposed to push on one another. But if you notice in the story with Joseph, they perceived Joseph to be prideful, which actually in the end turns out to not be that true. It's kind of true, but not really, because those dreams were real. And God actually worked through him, and those dreams became a reality. And so to some degree, he wasn't prideful. But they perceived him as prideful, and so they tried to kill him. Why? Because they were prideful. How dare he? How dare he think that he's something? I'm something. And there can't be two somethings, right? So the only way to get rid of this situation, the only way we can't turn on ourselves, is if we humble ourselves. If we renounce the pride But here is what I was trying to say, was that God is so big that we have our prideful little plans, our private little kingdoms that we're building up, 
And God's got His kingdom and His plans and they override ours. Man has agency. Man decides that they're going to kill Jesus. And they do. And yet, as Acts 2 says, by the predetermined plan of God, He was going to deliver Jesus over to the hands of sinful, culpable men. God will achieve His purpose regardless of the conspiracy that Jesus has found Himself to be in. There's two personal applications I want you to consider from this text. The first one being this. It's imperative to have compassion for others in need. Regardless of what you think you know about how church should be run. Regardless of what you think about how you think we should do anything. Worship. Teach. Whatever the case may be. Compassion for people overrides that reality. Now, what I'm not saying is that that means that we cower in a corner and we don't take direct stands on biblical doctrine. No, no, no. We do that. And that is some of the best ways that we can have compassion for people. But when that doctrine is not clear or when that worship service or when whatever the case may be, when that rule and that regulation is not specifically from the pages of this book and you cannot say... It's right here, chapter 3, verse 2. You lay it down for the sake of your brother and your sister. You don't add 13 rules to the Sabbath. 132 rules to the Sabbath. The Pharisees miss the man who has the withered hand because of their self-righteous hearts. They wanted to accuse Jesus. In our self-righteous hearts, things don't go the way we want them to, we oftentimes do the same. We find a way not to own that sin, but to point at others, to accuse them, or more sinister, to accuse Jesus, to accuse God. The second application I want you to take from this text is if you notice, there's not a lot of people in Jesus' corner right now. Nobody's got his back. No one's speaking for him. Living the Christian life will require conviction. So, these two points might seem antithetical to one another. On the one hand, have compassion over rules and regulations. Stand firm in your convictions. But they're not. People over principles. Bible over man-made religiosity. And sometimes, caring for people and standing in conviction will mean you will stand alone. As a matter of fact, church history proves this. Most of the men in church history, who have changed the world, did so alone. And I don't necessarily mean that there wasn't people that looked up to them, that prayed for them. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, there was no one there 
to fight for them. They were hated. A lot of times they were murdered. Where will we stand? Will we stand with God or a system? Will we stand with Jesus or the way that we've always seen things done? Will we humble ourselves or will we be humbled? Because here's the thing. Christians, though not perfect, right? Though will fail in areas of sanctification and growing in Christ-likeness, there will not be a single person, there will not be a single Christian that will spend eternity with God still attached to his self-righteousness. If you are a Christian and you struggle with pride, which is everyone, God will spend eternity trying, not eternity, because <laughs> when you see Jesus, you'll be perfect. You'll learn and you'll grow still. But he will spend the rest of your days on this earth making sure that you will be humbled. So you can humble yourself or you can be humbled. And everybody will be humbled, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian, you'll be humbled by Jesus through what I like to call abrasive grace. And if you are a non-Christian, if you refuse Jesus until the day of your death, you will still be humbled because you will come out of this thing knowing you were wrong. And you will pay for that reality. But here's where I want to end. Not on a sad note, not on a crazy hard note. But I want to say this. As we end today, I want you to contemplate the Jesus that we have seen in Mark's Gospel so far. I want you to contemplate this Christ. The one who does not play nice with our fleshly, man-made, and delusional religious systems but the one who comes offering us life, true life, beautiful life, abundant life, perfect and eternal life. And remember this, that this humbling yourself thing that I'm talking about, it's not just a one-time thing. You punched your card, you got the t-shirt kind of a thing. It's, it's an everyday laying yourself at the foot of the cross, admitting your inadequacies, admitting your unworthiness, and run to the foot of the cross, crying out for more and more grace. Because that is all we need. And we need it. We need that grace. We cannot live this Christian life on our own. Humble yourself or be humble. And who doesn't want to come in humility to this Jesus who has compassion for the weak, who has love for the destitute? And one of the things that I didn't mention in this text that makes itself evidently clear is that the bad guys in the story prostitutes, the tax collectors, the mobsters, the zealots, the guys Jesus gets hated on for being around. These guys follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Why? Because they know they're not much. 
They know they're not much. Do you know that? Pray with me. Father, I just ask that you would humble us all. Allowing the cross to do that. Allowing the cross to be the beacon that says we are all on the same playing field. That there is no superior Christian. There's no such thing as a great Christian. There is only weak, needing people. Lord, and I would ask you to impress this on our hearts and not to create in us a pessimism, but an optimism. Because it's in our understanding that we are not enough, that we are not that awesome, that you can be awesome, that you can be our Savior. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Help us to remember these truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.